Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Deborah Roberts. The Spelman College Museum of Art is showing Deborah Roberts' The Evolution of Mimi. It's on view through May 19th. The exhibition features work Roberts has made in the last half decade or so, work that uses collage and girlhood to examine issues of race, gender, and America's present condition. It was curated by Spelman College Museum of Art director Andrea Barnwell. In addition, Roberts is showing now at San Francisco's Jenkins Johnson Gallery. The show there is called Interrupted. It's on view through March 17th. Roberts was recently included in the group exhibition Fictions at the Studio Museum in Harlem. Her work is in the collections of the Studio Museum, the Blanton, and the Block at Northwestern University. On the second segment, Anita Vitek, who's showing a new installation at the Wexner Center for the Arts. But first, Deborah Roberts, after a break. Now through April 15th, the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents three spectacular exhibitions from a stylistically diverse group of artists. All of Everything, Todd Oldham Fashion, presents dozens of intricately embellished garments from the multi-talented designer's fashion stint in the 1990s. William Kentridge's The Refusal of Time explores thought-provoking ideas about time through an immersive mix of sounds, movement, and stunning imagery. And from Austrian photomontage artist Anita Vitek comes her first-ever U.S. installation, Clip, on view in the Wexner Center lobby. For more information, go to wexarts.org. Photographer Robert Polidori, known for his images of architecture and human habitats, created a series of images of the Getty Center shortly before it opened in 1997. On the occasion of the center's 20th anniversary, the exhibition Robert Polidori, 20 Photographs of the Getty Museum, features captivating behind-the-scenes views of the building and galleries as objects from J. Paul Getty's painting, sculpture, and decorative arts collections were being installed. Learn more about this exhibition and other ways to spend the holidays at getty.edu slash 360. This season, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Stories of Almost Everyone. Exploring a dominant impulse in contemporary sculpture of the last decade, the exhibition highlights the work of artists who use found or ready-made objects to convey history, site, memory, and economies of use. With an international roster of more than 40 artists, Stories of Almost Everyone investigates the relationship between material objects and the stories we tell about them. Stories of Almost Everyone is on view January 28th to May 6th at the Hammer Museum. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Deborah Roberts, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Your work often addresses the art historical past and the political and cultural present through collages, often collages, that present young girls. Virtually all of your work features young girls. Why young girls? Is there a historical source or point of reference? And I can think of a few that I'm sure we'll be talking about. Or is it more an art historical point of reference or more just kind of a personal point of reference? I think it's a little bit of all those things. One of the things that I always, you know, I go back to is that I noticed when I wanted to be an artist and when I thought about how I looked. And most of the times those happened for me when I was between eight and 10 years old. And I think it's a personal look back. It's also a historical look back. I think that, you know, the way black families are set up, the head of the household sometimes is a woman. So how 
can she sometimes carry those loads? I mean, is it something instinctively that she does, or is it something that she has to do? And is that put in us or started in us very early that maybe, you know, you're going to have to take care of yourself? So I think all those things are above works in the work. But between 8 and 10, that's when it all begins, really, as a young girl to become a teenager and then a, a woman. So if one of the ways, or maybe the first way the girls get into the work is through autobiography, through 8 to 10-year-old you. Do you remember when you began to put together 8 or 10-year-old you with 8 or 10-year-old girls in popular culture, history, art history? Yeah. You know, like when I first started doing the collages, I used my 8-year-old face. Your own 8-year-old face? Like images of your yeah, 8-year-old Yeah, my face? own. Yeah, images of my old eight-year-old faces. And it was really easy for me to deconstruct that face uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted the work to look like. How was I thinking about colorism or beauty or uh, just, just features and things like that? It was easy because I did not recognize that little girl anymore. I mean, I'm a grown woman. So tearing apart that face was uh, exercise and, and moving the work forward. I think when I was eight years old, I knew that I wanted to do things differently with my hair, my clothes, and my mom was very strict and I wasn't able to do those things. And I felt, you know, I still remember feeling like I did not want to be like my sisters. I want to be somewhat different. And I think that's why I chose between eight and 10 years old, because that's when I was trying to insert my independence. And my mother was saying, no, no, no. I, I don't mean to make this next question sound, you know, like it comes out of cultural response to the Simpsons or something. But do you, as you, as you kind of think about your practice now and look forward, do you expect your girls, so to speak, to stay the age that they're at? Or do you think that they may age as your work advances in the coming decades? The girls are definitely going to age. And I'm going to also add little boys. I just finished up a project with New York Magazine in which I had to do some older girls for a special feature. And I, I saw this work, me doing this work five years from now, and putting together the faces, well, it was a lot harder than doing the little girls that I use now because I didn't really have the time to do the research behind it and really push the message that I wanted to get through. I think issues at eight years old and issues at 22 year old are totally different. So I found myself kind of still using some of those, those imagery and issues that a little girl may face instead of a woman. So I, I, I definitely see these, these things growing older, more detailed, more complex as, as I age this child. So that is something I'm te- definitely looking forward to. As I guessed or, or, or kind of critically guessed where the idea of girls came from in your work, he says clunkily, I thought of two likely or possible uh, historical references. and. I'm going to ask about one and then the other, and and I'm hoping you can tell me if either of them was or is important to you. One of them is Ruby Bridges. Ruby Bridges was the six-year-old girl who was kind of spectacularly dressed in this marvelous plaid 
dress, and there are lots of pattern dresses, including plaid dresses in your work. Ruby Bridges integrated an all-white elementary school in New Orleans in, in, in 1960. The pictures are really famous. Was she or the photographic evidence of her experience important? Not really. Although I love Norman Rockwell, and he did the piece on her, the, the world that we live in, or something to that effect. She wasn't a part of my reckoning when I decided to do this little girl, although she was very important and is important today. I love the, the strength of that little girl. I mean, she was alone and she had to stand up to pretty much the whole world doing this, you know, time period. But that didn't fade into the work that I'm doing, although I think that's very important. And it's something I should be adding to my work. The textures and the patterns that I use in my pieces, I'm talking to this notion that the things that we thought we had solved are still around and it's a pattern that is keep repeating itself over and over and over again. So in my work, that's why the patterns are so important, the, the checks. I mean, if I started putting circles or targets, then the work would be marginalized and say, oh, okay, victim. She wants to be a victim and that's not it. It's just that there's a unique structural pattern that is consistently happening. And I put a lot of that into work. One of the things that comes across really strongly in your work, in part because of the white backgrounds on which you often place your figures, we'll talk about that later, is that you give these little girls a tremendous amount of, of agency and, and, and power. And it struck me that another possible takeoff point for you or reason to give girls power in the way you do might be the Birmingham Children's Campaign of 1963 when... when the children led the way when some adults weren't quite weren't quite ready to. And I wonder if that's an historical example that, that matters to you in, in, when it comes to the work. I think that is very important. When those students left classes and went out in March, that was really quite extraordinary. And it did show the power of youth. It showed the power of community. And I think that's also, that's the history part of my work. When I talk about the work. I always tell people I always take a four-prong approach to it where I talk about Black history, American history, pop culture, and art history. And I add all those together to come up with the imagery that I come up with. I think that those kids marching out of school, demanding equal rights was so very important. And I think that hopefully some of that is in the work that I'm creating, that Sometimes, you know, you're going to have to step out on your own. If you want to see the changes in the world, you know, you're going to have to make them. The show is titled The Evolution of Mimi. Who is Mimi? Well, so the work that I did, the body of work that I did when I was in grad school at Syracuse was The Miseducation of Mimi, where I took part of Lauren Hill's album title, and then I took part of... Mariah Carey's, and I mixed them together. But at one point, Lauren Hill was so powerful. She knew who she was. She knew exactly what she wanted to do. And she was unapologetic for it. And Mariah Carey, although she was very extremely popular, she had, a, she had at that time, she had a problem with her own identity as a Black woman. And I, and I wanted to show in my work that those two things exist in the Black community, in the Black womanhood, that not everyone's like a real strong woman. So now you have doubts about who you are. When we don't come out 
just automatically knowing, you know, I'm going to be tough. I'm going to fight the world. So I wanted to show both sides of that type of personality, those problems that exist in, in, in a black culture. So when I merged the two names, it was mainly to, to, to make sure that I wanted to kind of educate people. And I love the idea of Mimi because I, I just thought it was really cute, you know. So anyway, so that, that's where the title come come from. And it was the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And then it must have been the emancipation of Mimi, which, uh, you know, I thought I merged them together. You mentioned Syracuse. I have, a, I have a guess as to why you went to Syracuse. Why did you pick Syracuse? <laughs> well, I was accepted into other schools, but Syracuse came, I guess I got a full ride from Syracuse. I didn't know much about it, but I felt like I really wanted to concentrate on my work. And when I visited the campus, it was so remote that I felt like I could really, really, you know, get work done. I didn't know how remote it was going to be. I didn't know about the snow. The snow was something else. No, I didn't know snow came, you know, like came towards your face, came towards your back, came on top of your head. It came inside your ear. I mean, it's just snows. Every way snow can fall, it falls in Syracuse, and it falls often and often. So I had a lot of time to really work. And that was really good for me because it helped to work mature and really, really work through it. You mentioned Syracuse. I don't know what year you, you, you finished at Syracuse, but I did wonder if Carrie Mae Weems was part of why you went there or how you found. Well, yeah, I, 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 I got my MFA in 2014. Carrie Mae Weems was not teaching at the school at that time, but she was definitely one of the little nuggets they put in and in, in, under my you know hat they kept saying oh you have access to her and she lives in the city and you know and we have the amazing african american studies department and things like that which made it very important because i love carrie mcgreen's work i just oh my god and so i said you know okay i think i could do it and the first year i couldn't reach her i could i mean I I tried and tried, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm stuck at the school with all this snow, and I can't even get to Carrie Mae Weems. And then the next year, I was able to finally reach out to her and, and, and have some opportunity to talk with her and visit with her about my work. So let's let's talk about the figures the, the, themselves, the work, the objects themselves. One of the things that is most striking about how you build your figures is that they have the faces of children— as we've talked a little bit about, but the body posture and the neck down presentation, if you will, of grown up women. Was that something you had to work toward an idea you had to develop and reach? Or was it from the very beginning that these were little girls' heads on bodies that were older? Well, I, I did want to do that. I didn't I, actually those things like that happened in the studio. I wasn't planning actually on you know making you know it, the body parts bigger or making them some of male or older women. It quite happened by accident. One of them because I was cutting out a hand and the book fell on top of some work and it just looked right. So I said, well, let me cut this out and see how it looks. And then I said, okay, this is this is this is power. And you know, I love the work of Amir Bearden. 
And he does, he has big figures, big hands into work, and then smaller, you know, feet or, or eyes. And so I thought that stuff really worked in my work. So I would love to say that I did it on purpose and I'm a genius, but no, it happened by accident. <laughs> I mean, a lot of things happen. And only in the last year or so, Kyla, I've been able to work without fear. And, and that's due to some, you know, really good funding I had because before I was like trying to create works that either they were sellable or I didn't push the boundaries of the work. And and I didn't do that even in grad school. Uh, I didn't do that until I actually got out of grad school and was working part-time at a shoe store, which was horrible, and coming home and working on my practice. And I just kept saying, you know, you, you know, you have to do something that pushes the message, but then you don't, you're so afraid to, you know, go beyond what people are used to seeing from you. So the, the big hands, the, the Muhammad Ali's fist and, and things like that, the power that I needed to, to show in the work, I wasn't putting there. I wasn't using it. And I can't tell you why I wasn't doing it. But it's very important to right now to do this type of work. Then, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. Speaking of, of the hands, in most of your figures, you spotlight or call a viewer's attention to kind of three particular things. The figure's hair is always um, a point of focus. Her hands are always a point of focus, sometimes as a fist, sometimes not. And often her feet, too, which I should note aren't always feet. Sometimes the feet are actually hands. So I think I understand why you emphasize hair, but why hands and feet so much? Well, the the feet, when I have the feet coming from out of the body, it's really odd or there are legs and feet, they act as legs and feet. I always talk, that's when I'm talking more about how there are more men in our bodies telling us how to treat our bodies, how to react to certain things that happen to our bodies and things like that. So I think it's more of a power structure when I have the hands coming out of the body. I also try to speak to this notion that black bodies have always been a part of commodity, consumerism. It's, it's always been something that has fed, fed this country. So I have the hands coming out in that way. When I have the arms and the body, like in particular this last, this next piece I'm working on, and I have the three girls and their arms are super, you know, powerful, like muscular almost. And it's just talking about is a certain type of strength that I must have, you know, in order to carry the load I have to carry. And I have to develop these muscles, and I'm and I'm and that's in quotation, very early. I have to know certain things very early, and so that's important because I think that that harkens back to the history of blackness in America. So those arms are really important. Also, my arms, especially when they're women's arms, is there of comfort and past and present. You know that we need these hands to hold on to each other that's from the past and into the future. So that's really important is, you know, having really strong hands to comfort these little girls within their bodies. Well, as a tennis fan, I hope you find some Serena arms to use. 
Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I just uh, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I, I read when her when her little baby was born, and she talked about how she the little girl had very I mean Olympia. I, I'm a fan. So she had little strong arms, and she said, you know, she said, I can't believe it. My baby has my arms, and she may go through a lot of stuff that I went through, body shaming. And, you know, and she said, you know, she just thanked her mother for just being there. And I think that's important, too. We're shaped differently. I mean, I don't know what that is. It's just a part of the body and how the black body is produced. And I think that's something to be celebrated. You know, it's a difference. Not special. It's just different. You mentioned Bearden, Romare Bearden. I'm a big Bearden fan, too. Do you remember where and how and when you first found Bearden? When I first saw his collages, I think they were in an art book at either at Syracuse or I just found them here in Austin at the bookstore when I was looking for uh, different types of things to do. My my work wasn't always collage, so I just loved the, the use of. I I used to do a lot of jazz pieces, so he did a lot of jazz collages, and I used to use, do a lot of jazz paintings. I think very early on I saw his work not so much as a collage, but as color. You know, blues and 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 trumpets, yellow trumpets. You know, juxtaposition against a dark dark blue background with stars in it and someone playing music, a big yellow guitars and things like that. And I think I added that to some of some of the early jazz pieces I worked on. Because, you know, it one of the things about the work that's really interesting to me is it's easy to find the Bearden influence in the work, collage and the construction of faces that we talked about earlier. But it's also at least as easy to see where you have pointedly departed from Bearden. Bearden would never put a human being on a white blank backdrop. His pieces are just the most sublime cacophony of, of colors and shapes and depth. And, 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 and you use a lot of white backdrops. And then also in Bearden, and this is a good thing, I don't mean this as a, as a negative criticism, in, in, in Bearden, you know, there are 27 colors all pushing and pulling and competing for attention. And in your work, you use a lot of black and white and often that black and white is is punched up with one or with one and often no more than two kind of dominant colors. Did you think about those things as departing from Bearden, or did they develop in your work independent of of thinking of him? I think they developed independent of thinking of him. You're right about you're going to see a lot of Bearden influence in my work. I mean, I struggled just yesterday couple of days ago, I'm creating a, a new work. And when I was cutting out this collage, just a big arm and not like I go in tighter, I saw a blue line, a blue line all the way around it. And I said, Oh, my God, if I leave it like this, it, it looks first of all, it was it, it looked amazing, but it was instantly bearded. And it was like, so bearded, I can't use it. And I was like, oh, uh, it was so awful. It's still on my board right now on, my, on the collage I'm working on. And I can't not cut it out yet because, but it's so bearded. But for me, when I use the white, stock white backgrounds, I was thinking about how, I'm not Hannah Hawk in the way that, you know, because she did a lot of color backgrounds, but I didn't want your eye to go any place but on the being. And I, I I thought by with the collage and trying to create a background too, I mean it was 
I thought it would probably may become very busy. And that wasn't what I wanted. I wanted you to focus in on the child, focus in on the human that's in the picture, to to meet his that girl's eyes and have her eyes meet you. And I just said, okay, when I first did the first big one, I was going to almost do some paper behind it. And I said, no, let's do another one. And it just works really well because it's you and the work and nothing else. And and that's my point that I always try to say. I, I, I want you to see the human in that person and not as a partial person, even though it's a collage and a, a bunch of mixed faces. See that person as a whole person. See that person as a human. And if you can see her as a human, then you can maybe see yourself in her. And so that was really important in the work that, I, that I'm creating. So, yeah, I mean, I would love to do more things like Robert Bearden, but I don't want to be his clone, uh, even though I don't mind being his clone. I just still need to you know, stay true to what I want the work to talk about. No, I think it's, I think, I, think, I mean, for me, where the work comes alive is in where it departs, you know, that it, it just stands out in, in a way, you know, lots of other critics have made the Barclay Hendricks reference where, where Hendricks is forever putting figures on white backgrounds. I mean, you know, your work, you know, except for in that very specific way, your work has nothing to do with Barclay Hendricks. But I, you know, as an art history nerd, I love that kind of taking things from different generations of, of art history. Speaking of, of art history, and I, I do want to talk about some specific works, and we'll have images of these, I think, on manpodcast.com. You have a work in the Spellman Show called Untitled After Matisse. There are a number of reasons I can think of Matisse potentially being interesting to you, other than that he's kind of a good artist. One of them being his relationship with the French colonial experience. And also, at, you know, he made a very famous, maybe the most famous child portrait of the early 20th century, including a, a picture of his daughter Marguerite when she was about 10 or, 10 or 11. How did you specifically engage Matisse in that work and why him? I, I totally love him. I think a lot of artists, I mean, I'm talking in general terms, find a lot of excuses not to do work. Uh, I don't have a proper paper. I don't have a bigger studio. My studio's not together. Matisse lost access to his, his legs. And he wrote, he still, when he couldn't paint anymore, his hands, he cut, made collages. He found work, ways to do his work. That is the number one thing that I respect about him. I just love that. And so that picture in particular, people like that picture. I happen not to like that work. And I can tell you what, because I felt like at the end of doing uh, a series of work for Volta, I was done. But that was the last one, and I felt like I kind of like kept pushing at it, and I need to know when to stop. I had actually had a different type of dress on on that little girl, and I just I just kept messing it up. And I remember at that time I was talking on my blog about Matisse, and I I just started tearing up the collage element of the dress and started just applying it on, just applying it on like like I think he would have. You know, and then you just you saw him in this wheelchair with his big scissors, and he's just cutting. And I just made really big strokes and cuts and things like that. And I thought that really worked on that piece. I told of him because whenever I start to, you know, feel sorry for myself, don't feel like I have 
you know, the best environment. I don't have enough wall space to let the the work talk to each other, let it live together. Once they're done, they're put in a, a little box, you know, that I created. And I just keep saying, you know, I wish I had walls, but, you know, I've all sorts of excuses. But I think about him, and maybe I'm not in the perfect space, but I'm, been, I'm allowed to do the work that I've always wanted to do. So, you know, I give it up to Matisse, man. It's like, I, I'm glad people really love that work. I think he's amazing. We've talked a lot about the faces in your work and who who, who they are are and and how you make them you know which makes it stand out all the more that there are a couple of pieces in which the faces are obscured so i wanted to ask about those one of those is one of them's in the spellman show it's from 2012 it's called witness tell me about the face in that work and why it's obscured that's me that's that's one of my pictures of my face it's one of the early ones i don't know i guess it's a personal note on this one especially those early ones is that, you know, I'm one of eight kids, and I was so different, only in the terms that I loved art so much. And I always felt like I really kind of, I was kind of mistakenly put in that family, and that my real family, Michelangelo and Vincent Van Gogh and all these people are going to come and get me. And so I remember just being just different. And so when I was first working through those those works, I used to sandpaper a lot. And and then I felt like I was always silent in my household. So I, I remember trying to really make the lips where they were sewn together. And yeah, I guess that's a really personal picture. I mean, uh, now that I'm thinking about it, I used, I used to sand it a lot early on in the work. I'm not anymore. So Sometimes if you're not a witness, you know, you can't tell the story. And I didn't, I don't like people asking me a lot of questions. <laughs> you know, we're doing an interview right now, but it's totally different. And so I just always felt different. And sometimes I wanted to be erased. So I erased myself. And Tyler, that, yeah, that goes back to, remember I told you, I used my face to deconstruct these images until I was able to reconstruct them, which is what I'm doing now. So I had to just tear them apart. And this was one of the ones I did. I am guessing that the reason for a certain facelessness in 2016's Royal Blood, which in, in which the figure um, has, has a crown on, uh, on a face that's been obscured, comes from a totally different place. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that one was mainly talking about there's no royal blood here. You know, just talking about that we have to, sometimes we cause have kings and queens, and we don't know that to be true, but in order to to move forward and creating an identity for oneself, sometimes you have to say, I'm, I'm royalty. <laughs> and so I, I'm obsessed with Queen Elizabeth, I, I must admit. And so I, I just like the power of the sovereignty and that somehow I feel, you know, we don't have that you know, in this country, because we don't really know, we know we are Americans, but we don't know the the, the history, history. And so, so when I say there's no raw blood, it's speaking to this notion that we can't really trace ourselves back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. In the last year or two, you've made a number of works that feature your girls holding boxing gloves. 
one is titled rope a dope to make kind of the, the the reference to the sport and and even maybe to a particular fighter inescapable and then there are other works of of your girls putting up their dukes putting up their fists or or in a in a kind of body posture suggesting combativeness i'm thinking of works like red dots and hot water how much are those about the current political moment the red gloves the first one i did was tug of war and then you know later the it, it has a lot to do with the political world we now live in. Just like millions of Americans, I thought we were further along than we were. And I remember waking up in November. Oh, God, I can't even say it. And, and we had a new president, and he was that that person. And 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 then all the things that he said that, I mean, it, it's off. I don't even want to talk about it. But it's, the thing is about the great gloves is it's a it's an opportunity for 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 these girls to fight to keep the very things we have fought for. You know, like I'm ready if I have to go to battle with you, if I have to strap on these gloves and fight you for this, for my right to be here or to be recognized as an American, as a human, then I'm ready. And so rope or dope is, I think Mama Ali talked about, you know, sometimes people give you the okie dope or the ropey dope. They tell you that things are okay, but then that, you know, behind your back, they're doing other things that are structurally against you. So I always say don't fall for the rope or dope. So uh, when I did uh, Red Dots and Hot Water, it was going backwards to this notion of the ancient mama with the, with the hair but you know, very colorful skirt, and taking back that whole image of what Auntie Mama really was about, because it was a very strong, powerful woman who was able to take care of two households and do it very well, and make sure everybody was happy. And so, like, so when her fist popped, it's like I can take on anything and everything, but the work that I'm doing now, that I'm moving away from that, and I think that. We cannot be the mule, you know, to carry different things. So, you know, when you talk about politics, you know, what happened in Alabama, you know, black women came out 98% and, you know, really, you know, pushed that vote over. And we can't just always carry that load. So I'm, move, I'm shifting away from that a little bit in the work. With those more pugilistic works, I can't help but thinking of, of Betty Saar, in which she emphasizes the fight in and uh, the fight within black women and a willingness to bring the fight to a white supremacist society and and while there are no specific kind of forgive the phrase cut and pasted art historical references to sar the spirit of those works particularly red dots and hot water remind remind me of her right in particular yeah i mean we always have to be on the fence on defenses, and I, 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 I want that softer part, the vulnerability part, to come through more in the work. When I try and collage stuff like that, it gets it gets washed away in the the first. I mean, here's a step by step. I do the first thing I do is start constructing the faces, and once I get the face down, then I work on the body and what I want to talk about within the work. And and then I build a I build a collage, and sometimes I've been wanting to do more little girls more vulnerable, but it ha it just doesn't come out. I mean because we can't be vulnerable, not really, not right now. 
I think there's there's some space for that to happen, but not right now. Not right now. We have to stay on top of it, stay woke, as people say, and be ready, be ready to stand up and and stand in the cracks of society and say, hey, and the margins and come out of the margins, actually, and say, you know, I'm here and I'm going to help us get better. In 2015, you made a series of works uh, with the same title, Protest, all in capital letters with an exclamation point. What motivated those? That body of work I was talking about, the protest was about portraiture. And it was mainly to black people because I thought that colorism and this notion of good hair and this notion of big lips and things that we tend to criticize each other for was very very in the national spotlight. Then the Rachel Delazar issue happened with costuming blackness. That was also came about. And I remember working on those works and saying that black blackness wasn't a costume. But portraiture, taking these types of works, saying that a lot of the things that we fight about each other really is not important that it stems from a, a hard history in American history, and it has nothing to do with us now. So those works, I did 10 of those works, and I put a great background on each one, and all of them challenged the notion of being proud of who you are. And so I did, uh, that work to me looked more like Bearden than any of the works I've done in the past, because it was just so important to kind of really break up the face, cut and do multiple images on top of multiple images and and then do a lot of the little girls with their the tongue sticking out with the American flag and that to have a skin that has been whitewashed with great protest in it so that you could see the black skin underneath it, that we did not have to have this double consciousness of walking in the community and to the society and trying to look anything other than a, a black American. So, yeah, that work was very important. And hopefully I can revisit that one day on a larger scale. One kind of last question about source material or presumed source material. A lot of your titles include literary references. So there's a Maya Angelou reference within the work titled Still We Rise. There's a a work titled We Heard the Thunder, which I presume is a reference to the John Oliver Killens novel about the treatment of black soldiers in World War II, segregated soldiers in World War II. When you use a literary reference in the title, are you giving us a clue as to themes, subjects, ideas you're referencing in the work? Or are you just playing with words and phrases because they're really cool? Well, I'm giving you a reference. Hopefully people, you know, catch on to it. Because, like I said, you know, art history, American history, Black culture and uh, pop culture, all those things are very important. They, they, they interact our lives every day. So right now, I'm, like, I'm so, I think that we're living in the days of James Baldwin when he talked about being a Negro and, and, and the 1960s and the things that are happening today, are, are the, it's the same. We're, we're living in the present, also in the past at the same time. And so I use those references to kind of to remind us that we've already fought this fight. 
we need to move forward, move as a society, move forward. And the works that I'm currently working on talk to Rosa Parks. I'm working with works that deal with her booking number and and the and the silence of people who we think are there to protect us, to pass laws, to move us forward, are very silent in some of the things that are happening to people of color right now. So we can't have that. And if I want the work to be an artifact of this time, then I have to show those things. Those things are happening right now. And I think this, especially this World of Park stuff, is, is really, really, really important. We talked a little bit earlier about work that references or has within it Mariah Carey and Lauren Hill. So I thought I would make my last question about a 2016 work called Beehive. I, I, I have a hunch I know what we're referencing with that title, but tell me where that work comes from and how it ends up looking like it looks like. We'll have images on the, on the website. <laughs> <laughs> well, Beehive... You know, I, I, I love the lady who we know as Beehive. I wanted to say that, you know, there used to be a thing that, that black woman, I mean, Sunrise, Sunrise, the, the god who cried tears, the tears turned into beads, and the beads turned into black women. And that is, that's, I don't know if that's true or not. I think it's a fable. But when I did Beehive, I, want, I did a, a lot of little gold bowls on top of the head, and it was just a, a beautiful hive in which bees came and made honey and turned into black women. So I tried to do that in a couple of works. I don't think a lot of it made it to the uh, the show, but it is referencing bees, I mean, the tears of sunrise turning into black women, you know, from bees into black women. And they were strong. That's how black women were made. I don't I know that's not true. But I thought it was really neat. <laughs> and and in particular that that's the one I also want to use my hand more. I think and all the works that are there, that is the one that's most drawn. I mean more, you know, charcoal pencil and uh graphite and just really showing, you know, this is the type of work I used to do. How can I bring that type of narrative work into contemporary practice? So it was an exercise, and I just, I totally love that work. Beehive got some of my work. She has some couple of pieces. Beyonce owns a couple of yours? Yeah, three, actually, three. Did you name Beehive before or after that happened? <laughs> after that, I mean, before that. I mean, I had no idea. I mean, I, I was telling Andrea, Dr. Bornwell. The director of the Spellman Museum. Yeah, the director of Spellman, is that when I was in this little room doing this work, I had no idea that I would contact, be in contact with anyone like that or that my work would ever be in the museums. It was just me working and my own ideas of what I thought was important. And so, no, I, I had no idea. I didn't think about her. I was, you know, I had Picasso in my work and Frank Stella's work and Motherwell and, and all those types of things, you know, critiquing critiquing the, the notion that there were Black artists at that time period creating beautiful works that never had opportunity to show those works. And so, you know, it was just a, a labor of love. And then who knows, you know, we go back, we go forward 10 months, and I'm having a solo show at Spelman Museum. And I have my work collected by the Studio Museum of Harlem. It's just unbelievable. Not too bad. Deborah Roberts. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
Focus, Nina Chanel Abney, is on view now at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition includes the artist's visually frenetic paintings reflecting the fast-paced energy of life today. Her imagery refers to such diverse subjects as pop culture, world events, and art history in compositions with flattened, simplified forms. Abney's works commonly incorporate snippets of text, disembodied figures, silhouettes, and geometric abstract shapes. Themes that relate to American society, including celebrity culture, race, sexuality, and police brutality, are broached in her paintings. By touching on serious subjects in a colorful palette and graphic style, Abney's work is, as the artist states, easy to swallow, hard to digest. Through March 18th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Courtside Photographs by Bill Bamberger, an exhibition of vibrant color photographs of a variety of basketball hoops around the world. From Maine to Florida and Rwanda to Mexico, the hoops indicate places both where basketball is played and where communities and relationships are built. They are objects that often shape and reflect those communities. As a part of many diverse landscapes, the hoops become integral elements of each location's unique narrative. The artist, Bill Bamberger, is a resident of Durham, North Carolina, and an instructor at Duke University's Center for Documentary Studies and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. On view through May 13th at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Experience First Sculpture, Hand Axe to Figure Stone, an exhibition that explores prehistoric tools and collected objects as evidence of the beginnings of artistic intention and craft. In the first museum exhibition to present ancient hand axes as works of art, the show highlights the aesthetic qualities of each stone and provides crucial historical and scientific information to give the viewer a deeper understanding of human history, as well as an enriched appreciation for humankind's early ability to sculpt beautiful objects. On view through April 28th at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. Learn more at nashersculpturecenter.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Anita Vitek. She's showing a new installation at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. Titled Clip, it's her first site-specific photo montage to be shown in the United States. It'll be at the Wexner through April 15th. Vitek has previously shown all over Europe, including at the Kunsthaus Wien, the Kunsthal Graz, at the Leopold Museum, and more. Anita Vitek, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. We will have images on manpodcast.com of your big installation at the Wexner. But tell us from what is it made? And I mean I mean that both in terms of its source imagery and then the actual physical thing the, 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 the space is made out of. The installation, uh, well, that relates to of what I have used for, for the installation is like the way I got introduced to the to the Wexner Center. That played a role in what material I have chosen to use for the collage, for the installation. I got introduced to the foyer through its architectural structures. Like I got a 3D model sent and plans of the walls, the dimensions of the space to study the history. <laughs> and I made like my own research. And since I have never visited in person, I never really got a sense of how the space felt when it was in daily use. So I started imagining the space. I was taking the model apart, reassembling it. At a certain point, to me, the columns and beams became like limbs or tentacles. And 
And I, I got the sense that it was more about architecture than the building. Like, yeah, the feeling that I got related to the project. And when I'm doing site-specific work, I'm, I'm often using material that is directly connected to the space, like posters that are advertising shows of the institution. But now, now I come back to your question. I, um, in case of the installation here at the Wexner, I was going back to the time when this building was conceived, like around the 80s, 1980s. So I was looking through my paper clippings from from all the series, from like bits and pieces that would come from that time and gravitate around that time and pieces that I had used in former montages and photo series. So yeah, that is the material that that I was using. For example, like it would be like advertising for some technical equipment like hi-fi or where I have, where I would take the like the information out basically like the yeah i mean this is like the like my like my working process i don't know but that's probably the next another so as i look at the model my sense is that you've created a thing that people can walk through and stand in and and that they are completely surrounded by the work are you interested in affecting a, a physical response and making people have a physical reaction in your space? Yeah, because that's how I, I how I started. To this was the reason why I, w I wanted to make collages that one could walk into, you know, to have something that usually stays flat on a table is smallish stand-up collages or walking collages. I, I haven't, you know, there's no clear term to. Yeah, I do. How did you get to that? So that, like, my, my my working practice is to cut out the central information of, let's say, like, an advertising, to cut out the objects and the subjects and, yeah, the, what, basically what the image is about, I'm getting rid of and focus on what surrounds the central information. Also, to maybe in a metaphorical sense, to make myself or others look beyond things that the focus was supposed to be directed to. So, yeah, I, I use sound imagery, the background of sound imagery sort of stuff that is, doesn't have the information anymore. So, and then I'm basically, so then you will have a, some like a, like missing missing parts, but then those missing parts that's what I I really like to have the viewer, you know, to fill basically those those gaps with their own kind of ideas or sometimes I also layer it. I layer them. When I look at images of your installations in other places, mostly in Europe I often think of cubist painting and that it kind of looks that moving through your work must be what it would feel like to walk through a cubist painting. Is are, are you, Were you interested in, in cubism and cubist painting? Was that a jumping off point for you? Yeah, I, I was thinking of this and I very often people, I get directed to this. My work is like Schwitter's Merzbau or... Big of, time. Yeah, I, that, that was the first thing I wrote down. <laughs> but... Yeah, but I, I, well, I have, I have not 
I don't know where these influences are coming from <laughs> directly, really, honestly. No, and I could also see like you, uh, that you were talking about Rachel Whitehead and uh, the buildings, and uh, that's what I was looking at. Well, let me, let me, let me, yeah, let me get to White Reed. Um, one of the things that jumps out of a lot of your work is that there's a relationship between buildings and the memories people have of them, and there's kind of a concurrent relationship between photographs and how we associate photographs with memory and memory with photographs. You went to art school in London, and I guess anybody who's who's going through London art schools in the last 20 or 25 years can't help but think of Rachel Whiteread and her examination of buildings and memory. Uh, were, were, was she, was that important to you? Yeah, well, I mean, there was a that was a time when the when I studied in London, that was like the early two thousands, late nineties. So there was a time when this was. She's also kind of a part of young British art movement, right? Maybe not so much, but she was definitely like a very important figure. And then she's also working with the negative space or with something filling basically. A space with or taking a cast of space right so I've never actually thought about this this connection or, or, or influence in, in that way but probably it's there I mean going to like going to London from Vienna there the, the young British artists or this kind of generation was yeah there was a reason for me to go to London and to want to study there so I'm sure that is an influence on my work because one of the things that's lots of fun about your work is that you find lots of ways to reference and layer history and memory and so one of the pieces in which you you did that recently was a piece from last year called artist and muse that you made for the leopold museum in vienna and in that piece you <laughs> made use of two Aegon sheila paintings sort of so how did you make use of those two paintings and why? Yeah, when I got invited for the show, it's, it's a group exhibition, still on. <laughs> I Yeah, well, I I was visiting the building and then I was uh, looking into the, into the poster archives that they had, the posters that would advertise the, the exhibitions there. Then I, there were two images that, or two posters that, that basically that I I, I chose. It's uh, Egon Schiele's self-portrait with, I don't know, the English word, Lampionsfrüchten, and uh, the portrait of Vali Neuzil. And both posters depict paintings that are hanging in the permanent collection in the museum. So I, I was invited to do an installation in the lower lobby which, which is quite a like a huge space so i i was thinking of sort of weaving this all together in a way but what i did and i have not done this before ever to cut a reproduction of a painting apart <laughs> so i tend to work with photography or you know something that you have the feeling it's like a photographic background and you take the you take the whatever information out but with the painting it was all of a sudden it was a bit different it felt different because i 
to get the information of of that, like taking Egon Schiele himself out and his news and acquaintance and probably lover and model. And I, I basically, I, yeah, I cut them out. Were the figures missing, like those holes? I sort of, I fused them or I, I glued them together, sort of, you know, to, to create a three-dimensional shape. I fused, basically, I fused those two images. I made the two images one. <laughs> We'll have an image of it on on the website too. People can see it. It's you you can see how it works and how you're really left with this with brush stroke as sculptural intervention. Yeah, and I I also I also thought it would be it's a bit like fusing because there's not much you know there's always stories about Egon Schiele and Valinoetzil and their books have been published and there had been the show about her at the museum as well but it's also vague there are no very clear it's not documented as now everything's documented the photography and like you can you could probably so there's like a few letters and and things so their relationship isn't a isn't very clear really yeah so you you'd find her on you can recognize her on, on, on his drawings or not. But I, what I'm trying to say is that it's quite a diffuse sort of situation. And I, I, I liked to sort of bring them together in uh, that image with this, with this wall installation. In terms of how the object exists today, physically, it's a good example of how you often make two-dimensional things into three-dimensional spaces. So another example is a piece of yours called About Life, which you made um, about a year and a half ago that was made from posters for exhibitions by artists such as Robert Maplethorpe and Man Ray or, or a number of other works you've made going back several years. Is there something about making things that are in two dimensions into three-dimensional things that are experienced in three dimensions that particularly interests you? Well, I think that comes from, you know, the time when I was wa working with photography or starting, started to work with photography, that photography is always something that is flat and has a surface that is, that you can only penetrate with your eyes, but it's something flat, it's, it's something not very haptic. You, you read a photograph in a very different way than a painting, and I think it, and then it's limited to a certain size. And I don't know, maybe it came from this situation where I wasn't very happy with the photograph as a, as this flat, glossy object or a matte object or whatever. So to me, there was this moment when it became really important to, to find a possibility to step into a photograph or a question whether that is, you know, that is possible. I think this three-dimensional, the idea of, of turning it into something that's three-dimensional that came from this, to become part of the picture in a way and also have other people who, who want to see my work or who go to museums to become part of the picture and then so that this would 
like because I'm I mean we're like in Austria we're still there's still many billboards like large billboard walls like advertising for example and you you're driving past them and you get the information about like this code is I don't know, 39 euros, 90. And then, but it's like, it's in your eyes everywhere. <laughs> so I, I also, I was also using some of that material earlier in a work, like billboard posters straight. But I thought it, it, to me, it's important that people sort of experience, you know, they put them back into the picture. That's what's kind of a, an idea, I think, of how I started the, the three dimensional work. So to do that, your work often makes clear or evident that material has been cut up, either literally cut up with scissors or, or, or a knife. So things, things are cut up before being installed. Is that physical act of cutting things up important to you, a part of your process that, that you particularly value, or is it just kind of necessary to get to the end point and that's, that's what it takes? <laughs> Well, to me, the it's more like it's more like a it's not it's more like drawing, you know. To, I I use the the cutter more like like someone would probably use a pencil or something. And I'm trying to keep the shapes that I'm interested in. I mean, you could also turn it the other way around and say she's cutting things out, but I'd see it the other way around. I'm sort of making things visible, which are the background or the surrounding of something. So. Rather than um, making holes into something, I'm uh, pointing out other parts of the images that might be neglected, but being a very important part of the image. Finally, I noticed that an enormous amount, maybe all of the material you use, is descended from male artists, such as Maplethorpe and Man Ray in About Life. Is that an intentional decision by you, or is it just accidental in the sense that museums show one heck of a lot of men and as a result some of the material available to you tends to be material that descends from men yeah unfortunately the second <laughs> yeah no I it figured. Was pretty, it, yeah 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 no absolutely because it was like when i was doing um or invited to do the exhibition at the kunsthaus in vienna and that's a museum that is dedicated to photography and like art but sort of art like going like more into photography so i was uh, the first austrian female photographer to show there in a 25 year history so i thought yeah this is still i got told at the opening and i mean i have chosen the posters from their archives i mean there were female photographers I think it was uh, McCartney, Linda McCartney had a show there. And I mean, there were, but yeah, still kind of a, well, we know that there is, is, is not an equality here of how many women show compared to of how many men do. <laughs> so this is not, it's not a coincidence, it's just life. Oh, yeah, I, I, I hear you. Anita Vitek, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information.
Thanks for listening.